Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These these your notes about what we're going to say? Anything is a short answer. (laughs) So how many novels did you not finish? Oh my God, so many. (laughs) It was perfect. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. (laughs) This is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. (laughs) Write it here first. Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. On today's episode, I'm very excited to have best-selling superstar YA author Alexandra Bracken. Hi, Alex. Welcome Hi. to the show. Wow, what a flattering intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you well, for having me. I mean, I, I was very excited to have you. You are, f- for someone so young, you are you are so accomplished in publishing. You have. Uh, when I looked up how many books you had out, I was I was honestly shocked. I was like, really? uh, honestly, I have been telling people my new book, Silver in the Bone, is my thirteenth book for about six months, and then I actually <laughs> counted, and it's my fourteenth book. So yeah. <laughs> I would I would like to apologize to my Star Wars book, my little retelling of a new oh. book, because sometimes I just completely forget that book exists. At least you know which one it was that you weren't counting. Yeah. I was like, it's like, does that one count if it's not a ri- like totally original fiction? I don't know. Yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride. I've definitely have been doing this a long time, and I'm starting to feel a little bit like an elder in the young adult community, which blows my mind. <laughs> oh, okay, that's a that's a daunting thought. But let's talk about um, your fourteenth book, uh, brand new, which will be out by the time this airs. Silver in the Bone. Tell us a bit about it. Yes. Okay. So this is one of those books where I have been struggling for months to figure out the right way to pitch it. And then one of my author friends very recently was like, oh, it's kind of like this meets this. And I was like, that is exactly this book. So it's kind of like a young female Indiana Jones crossed with Arthurian legend with a dash of, and this was the missing ingredient, The Last of Us. And it has like a rival to lovers romance and a ton of twists. But to be completely honest with you, I have been very taken aback by the amount of professional reviews, like trade reviews rather, that I've gotten that have cited that this book is fantasy and horror. I was like, I didn't write a horror book. And until my oh. friend was like, actually, there is like some light flavoring of The Last of Us, kind of a little bit of a zombie um, essence thrown in there. I was like, oh, yeah, now I'm getting why all of the reviewers said this. But I can give you a nice detailed plot pitch if you would like that, too. Let's hear it. Yeah, it's the story of 17-year-old Tamsin, who along with her brother has grown up in this hidden world of treasure hunters who seek out magical relics. But the one thing she really desperately wants is to find an object powerful enough to break a terrible curse that's slowly but surely consuming her brother. And when she finds out that their missing guardian may have vanished looking for an object like that, known as the Ring of Dispel from Arthurian legend... She sets out to follow her guardian's trail to the ring, and along the way, she ends up working with, of course, her infuriatingly handsome and charming rival, a young sorceress, and you know, who want the ring for their own mysterious reasons, and the search ends up bringing them into the other land of Avalon, of Arthurian legend. Only Avalon itself is suffering from a terrible curse, and soon they won't just be looking for the ring, they'll be fighting to survive. So... Amazing. A little, little sprinkling. That's the zombie essence maybe coming out a little. <laughs> oh, yeah. The zombie. Okay, so you, you accidentally wrote a horror. Um but you but you were you were aware it was Arthurian legend was the goal. You you yeah. you, you zeroed in on that. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it just happens that way. It happened that way with my Darkest Mind series too where I like didn't really realize I was writing a dystopian book. I thought I was writing sort of a sci-fi superpowers book, but it And some of it too is just like what's kind of out there in the world and pop culture too. It kind of determines how the book is seen a little bit. How because for marketing purposes, the publisher wants to be able to kind of 
fit it into a genre a little bit more neatly. So sometimes it gets like kind of shoved in there, even into like one in particular, even if it's, you know, blends a couple different genres. But I've been reading, are you familiar with John Truby at all? I'm not, no. He has a, he's basically, I want to say he's like a screenwriting coach, especially he kind of focuses, his specialty is like screenwriting, but he has a book called Anatomy of a Story that I love. It's a wonderful book for novelists, for screenwriters. Um, it is definitely not necessarily for beginners. Like if you're just starting out on your writing journey, it may be a little bit overwhelming because he goes into such detail, but it's such an interesting way of thinking about constructing story. But that's a long tangent to get back to my point, which is he just recently released this absolute beast of a book about genre. And it's been so interesting to read through the horror section, the fantasy section and the myth section and to kind of like take off in my head. And I think all authors do this where they are kind of subconsciously tapping into these various genres and pulling in the different tropes. Yes. So it's, yeah, it's a fabulous book. I think it's literally called Anatomy of Genres. It's right behind me. <laughs> and it looks like it's 3,000 pages long, but it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you want a big reference book, right? Because you're not, you're not reading it cover to cover necessarily. Exactly. You're kind of thumbing through it. Although I admire anyone who would be like, you know what, I'm just going to commit like two straight weeks of reading this book before <laughs> taking notes. It's a gripping yeah. read. <laughs> exactly. But genre, yeah, genre is so funny because it's interesting that you say when you're describing The Darkest Minds that you kind of pitch it as like a superhero, dystopian superhero thing, superpower thing. Whereas like there's there's sort of such a a, a tight crossover between saying that and also saying like modern urban fantasy because lots of your stuff's yes. also set in real cities, right? Like New York, Boston. Exactly. Yeah. I think the term that we're using now is contemporary fantasy. I was like, when did it change okay. from urban fantasy to contemporary <laughs> fantasy? But yeah, like I would I would probably consider The Darkest Minds at least a little bit of contemporary fantasy. It sort of comes down to how you um you know, how you would break down science fiction versus fantasy when it comes to superpowers or just the overall um the overall story world and all of that. But yeah, yeah it's it always, I kind of love that though about writing where it, I'm sure you have experiences too, where you're writing something and your subconscious has been working so hard in the background on something and you like yeah. reread what you've written and you're like, oh, I thought the story was X, but it's actually Y. Um, I know yeah, some yeah, authors yeah. are very, very like good about following <laughs> an outline and they are in complete control of their story, but I am basically um functioning on just like waves of chaos over here and then oh, okay. it takes me eventually to where i'm going oh, okay so are you you're, you're you're not a planner or plotter you're much more a discovery writer yeah i think i kind of fall somewhere in between now when i first started i was purely a discovery writer and then mm. i kind of forced myself to go back and really learn craft, which is not something I'd had any sort of formal education on either in university or really, I, I guess you wouldn't really have creative writing craft in high school, but I really went back and started. <laughs> That's when I, I discovered John Truby. Um, I like really went back because I wanted to be able to articulate my writing process better than just saying like, I don't know, I had this mental image in my head and I the character just sort of started talking to me. And so for a, for a while, for like a stretch of my career, I tried so hard to be an outliner. And now I have kind of like swung back into being a little bit more of a discovery writer. And I think that's where I have the most fun. But I do outline the like couple chap, like I'll do the next three batch, three chapter batch rather, excuse me. Okay. So like, yeah, I guess it's, it's like headlights plotting is I think- the term that's that people use term. for it where I've not heard that before. That's yeah. great. So you're kind of driving along and you can see immediately what's front in front of you and you kind of know the major stops along the way. But this way it gives me this kind of this fun that I the sense of fun that I think I sometimes lack when I am working just completely off of a very rigid outline. So it's you know the character is getting from point A to point B, but you don't necessarily know how. Yeah. If that makes sense. Uh, so okay. it's a lot of fun for me, but I think it can be kind of intimidating to write 
that way where you just are like going into a scene and you're like, we'll see where this takes me today. And you don't have (laughs) as much control over the story. But going back and like teaching myself more about craft and learning more about craft has kind of given me a more, it's given me a firmer foundation to stand on. So my more intuitive writing process can kind of take over and I can trust that I have not gone completely off the rails. Yes. Okay. So, so you feel like you're, since you, you know, you've been writing for, for a while now and you feel like your, your writing and your style has kind of really evolved since you first started. Yeah. Which surprised me. Cause I think I always, I don't know. My goal with each book is just to write a better book than the last book. Um, and so I will sometimes take a big swing and sometimes it's a big miss, but I am like always trying to push my storytelling. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so funny because you never quite know what's going to land with readers. Um, and I never want to deliver the same story to them twice. Um, and so some readers love that and some readers are like, but I wanted more of this. So it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of a gamble, but it's always fun. So a lot of times nowadays I'm like, how can I have more fun with this story? And it ends up taking me to a really fun place. And I just have to hope that readers will kind of follow. But it did surprise me that like looking back, it it does surprise me that my kind of writing process has changed as much as it has, but everybody's brain likes to work in such a different way. I think it is important to kind of experiment and see what works best for you and be like constantly trying to (laughs) find a way (laughs) to streamline this absolutely massive process of writing a book. Well, it's natural just to grow as well. You know, as as you get older, you're going to grow and you're practicing more and more. Every book is in theory practice for the next one, right? Absolutely. Do you have a flick through your old stuff. And this is something that's I've heard is very common. I know Zadie Smith always talks about this. Uh, do you ever flick through your old stuff and go, mm, I would not have written it like that now? <laughs> you know, this is really embarrassing to say. It's less that and more I have no memory of having written this. I think <laughs> the way my brain works is that like I will get the story out of me. I will like download it onto the page and then my brain like immediately dumps that information and it's like <laughs> on to the next project and slowly gathering that information. Wow. So it is. That's efficient. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, I very rarely will go back and actually reread something after it's published or even um, reread sections of it. The only time I've really done it is ahead of writing a sequel, just wanting to like revisit something. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's sort of like, and I also cannot listen to my books on audiobook either, even though I have such a respect for the readers. Um, and the, I have had some really wonderful audiobook readers, and I'm I feel very lucky over that. Um, but I think it it must be somewhat like how some actors can't watch themselves on screen. I feel like if I go back and reread something I've written or I listen to something I've written, I will just be like cringing and get really bad secondhand embarrassment and be like, oh, I could have written that much better. So yeah, I guess yeah. yes and no, I kind of agree. <laughs> that I, <laughs> but I, I think I just am so avoidant when it's when it comes to that, that I like don't put myself in that position of going back and rereading. That's probably healthy. You're focused on the present and the future and you're just going to keep writing and writing more and better stuff. That's great. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I kind of, the more, like the further I get into my career, the more I think that that is actually the secret to having a long career in publishing is just to be able to like move on to the next and kind of learn what you need to learn from having written the book before and, you know, jump into the next story and just keep going. Um, even if you have like a stumble where readers don't particularly love a certain book that you've written, it's like the recovery from that into the, and like pouring your love into a new story. That's like what continues to carry you forward and generates that forward, forward momentum over the years. So that's why it's so shocking to me to look back and be like, Oh my gosh, I've now published or you know, I've now published 14 books at this point. I've gone through this process <laughs> yeah. 14 times and it's just been like <laughs> pure inertia carrying me forward. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of looking back, let's dial this back a bit. Um, so I know that you sold your first book when you were still in college. So yes. I'm guessing that was, um, was that the graphic novel? Brightly that Woven? was, 
that was the original book that the um, graphic novel was based on. And what ended up happening was that um, I sold my that book, Brightly Woven, the novel version, my senior year, my second semester of senior year. And um, it went on to be published the next spring, so 2010. And then it was with a small publisher. It was Egmont's USA brand, Egmont USA. They started up like, I guess, a smaller American, North American arm. Um, shouldn't even say North American. It was really the United States arm. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like trying to like change the way I, I'm trying to like get rid of saying something is American when I really mean the United States, because yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. there are other countries in North America. Um, so Egmont USA, just like, very sadly went out of business. They decided to fold that US arm. And then I the rights reverted back to me. And I I felt like it was such an odd publishing experience where I had an editor who, and I was, you know, really young at the time, 21, 22, trying to get this book into shape and trying to like achieve this dream of being published and make a career out of it. So I really deferred to this editor a lot on like what to cut and um, the edits. And I, I sort of looking back on it was like, I don't even really recognize my writing as much in this book. Um, so I sat on it for a really long time and then decided if we were going to republish it um, or if we were going to sell the rights to it to a new publisher, I wanted to either really revise the book or I wanted it to come out in a different different format. So at that okay. point it had been pirated so much as the novel that I was like <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I feel like maybe what I actually really want to do is to kind of experiment with like bringing it into a graphic novel format because it is a standalone. Um I think it can be you know it, it now feels very middle grade rather than young adult because of how kind of dark and mature YA has skewed over the yeah. last 13 years. Um and I was like, well, I I feel like we should kind of experiment with like aging some of the characters down and just bringing it out in a different format. And it was it was really fun to play around with the story that way and see that it could be retold in a completely different format. So we had um, someone come in and adapt it from the actual novel because I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm going <laughs> to learn from this process the best I possibly can. <laughs> And um, yeah, it was just, it was such an interesting journey though for, for that little book um, with the little publisher. Yeah. That's so, that's really, like, that's so cool that you wanted to bring it back, but as in a different form, in a different iteration. I think that's also very, that feels very brave as like one of yeah. your first kind of like <laughs> things to do. You know what? Actually, let's change it up. <laughs> yeah. It's funny too, because it had, um, at the time, Brightly Woven had its like little fan base and it like still amazes me to this day. It, I think that was one of the reasons why when I swung just like a completely different direction with the darkest minds, like I went from brightly woven to the darkest minds. A lot of people think the darkest minds was my debut and it wasn't. Um, those readers were very loyal and followed me from this like kind of sweet height fantasy book into this sort of <laughs> futuristic sci-fi dystopian world of yeah. darkness. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I think that book was able to get a little bit of word of mouth. So, um, you know, just right off the bat. Um, but yeah, it was, it felt like a worthwhile experiment to me because I also knew the readers who had loved Brightly Woven would feel like a little bit nostalgic about it and would maybe want to see it in a different format too, to kind of bring it, you know, next to the original book on their shelves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So as you mentioned, you you were very young when you signed that publishing deal. Have you, I, I'm going to guess off that, that you've been writing or wanting to be a writer from a, from a very, very young age. Yes, this is, I don't, did you have this experience where you knew from a very young age that you wanted to be an author or you wanted to write stories? Was that true I, for you? I didn't actually. I knew throughout all of my teens that I was going to be a rock star. So it was a, it was a different experience. <laughs> um, it hasn't panned out yet, but you know, fingers crossed. <laughs> never say never. I mean, I feel like anyone can become a rock star with TikTok in the picture. <laughs> like yeah, you yeah. Anything just can have to go viral. Yeah. <laughs> 
but it wasn't an author. That came later. Oh, see, I love that. I feel like that's true for a lot of my friends. It really is kind of a mixed bag when we talk about this, where some of us, including myself, knew from a really young age. Like I remember being in second grade and thinking to myself, I this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to write books for four kids. Like it was that specific of like, and I think honestly, it was just the thought process there was I loved reading. And I was like, if it's this fun to read, it will be this fun to tell stories. And that was, I think, second grade or third grade maybe was when we started having these little creative writing writing units in school. And they would have us write these little short stories based on whatever like science unit or history unit um, we were learning about at that time. So I remember like one of my, one of my first books was a story about how the asteroid belt was formed and it involved like <laughs> jealous planets or something. I love how you remember these books, but you don't remember the yeah, published books. <laughs> exactly. I was like before my memory was broken, yeah. um, before I had to like, you know, memorize so much stuff in school. Um, but it's also like our memories are so strong when they're attached to a very strong emotion, right? So mm, yeah, I think when I was young, reading and writing just filled me with so much joy that I really remember some of those like early days of writing fan fiction and like publishing it under a pen name on fanfiction.net and getting <laughs> reviews and learning from the reviews. But honestly, writing fan fiction really got me in the habit of writing consistently and um, meeting deadlines because I would mm -hmm. promise like I'm going to upload the next chapter of this, you know, by next Friday or whatever. Um, and so I would try to meet that deadline up so I wouldn't disappoint readers. And that is honestly like once you kind of get in the habit of writing daily, it, you know, it carries you through writing a whole novel eventually. That's great. But yeah, I was I was definitely one of those really annoying kids who had this like, <laughs> shining sense of purpose of what she was supposed to do with her life. And I feel so, so, so lucky that I have been able to make a life and career out of it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What um, what was your fan fiction? Oh, my gosh. I almost don't want to say because I think it's still on <laughs> fanfiction.net. I don't know if like there has been any sort of purging, but it was um, there was some Star Wars. There was a little nice. bit of Harry Potter back in the day. Okay. Um, yeah, I think there was some Sailor Moon fanfiction. Oh, uh, yeah, real mixed I was bag. like very great. yeah, it was all over the place. Really, that's. <laughs> <laughs> so fr from from this from from all of your cutting your teeth in fan fiction as a teen was brightly woven was that the first novel that you, the kind of full novel that that you wrote and then submitted and sort of put out into the world It was actually the second novel oh, okay. that I wrote the first one that I wrote was for National Novel Novel Writing Month NaNoWriMo um, it was my freshman year of college because it was not already hard enough to go to university across the country to like be trying to double major. I was like, I'm going to finally write my novel because I had just heard about this novel thing called NaNoWriMo. Um, and so I wrote a book. I wrote a novel that shall never see the light of day. Um, it is really, <laughs> really bad, <laughs> truly bad. Mm -hmm. um, and I, at the time, though, was convinced of my own genius, which is honestly like another really important trait to have when you're first starting out. You almost have to have this like slight delusional belief in yourself because <laughs> that is the thing that is going to carry you through, you know, getting feedback, harsh and like, you know, other gentle, you know, like just is the thing where you have to like believe in yourself and believe in your story first and foremost before anybody else will. And so yeah. I think I... <laughs> I'm that delusion more as like an 18 year old than I do now at 36, literally half a <laughs> lifetime ago. Um, but yeah, I wrote it and I was, I was like, maybe I will try to get it published because at that point, this would have been like 2006, I think. Um, there was a lot more information online about like how to find an agent and how to query and all of that. And so I was like trying to query as I was, you know, going to school and absolutely nobody wanted this book, unsurprisingly. And of course yeah. I was crushed. Um, and thank God nobody wanted this book. Um, and so to kind of like ease back into writing, my friend who had helped me really edit that book, I wrote 
a new book that was like for her birthday. And that was what eventually became Brightly Woven. So technically it was the second thing I tried to write. Um, And yeah, it just, it had like a very special feeling about it. I think some writers kind of downplay their intuition when it comes to storytelling or they, um, I don't know, they're not quite as, I, I really think it always benefits writers to, kind of like listen to what your intuition is trying to tell you. Like if your intuition is saying, this is a special idea, you could, you should run with it. Like you should continue to develop it. Even if it feels hard, like that's an important voice to listen to in yourself. Yes. Not to get too woo woo with you. Yeah. But I think like, (laughs) I think we do have this voice in us as like all creative people do. All people really have that kind of intuition. And it's just a matter of like, whether or not you're willing to listen (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. So once once you you were you were feeling good about this book, was this the the was it straight to the the small publisher or did you would did you submit to agents and then it was through your agent? So I then I gosh, I this is like one of the memories that I have such a vivid memory <laughs> of. It. I was like, yeah, I was in bed. One of the things that has not been deleted yet. Um I was I was an RA. I was like a resident advisor. Um, and I, so I got a room, I had a dorm room to myself my sophomore year, which was awesome. Nice. Um, and so I remember I was in this little, like slightly roach and cockroach infested room and I was laying in bed and I was about to fall asleep and I sat up and I just like immediately knew how to write the query letter and I wrote it all in one go. And that was the query letter I sent out. Um, and oh I God, started getting, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, I, I lightly edited it. So I wouldn't embarrass <laughs> myself being like yeah. half asleep having written it, but it was, it was this really weird moment. Um, and then, you know, I sent it out and maybe, you know, within a week or two, I started getting requests and I was like, wow, like this is amazing. I'm so excited. But it, I think at the time it was like midterm. So I was also very stressed. Um, <laughs> and I remember like, I had been coming, I had been taking one of my midterms and I had a missed call from a San Diego area code. And obviously a lot of publishing in the US is based out of New York, but I knew that I had submitted to an agent who had a San Diego, who hadn't like, I had submitted to Writer's House here in the US and they had an office in San Diego at the time. And I had submitted to one of the junior agents out of that office. And so it ended up being that agent calling me to offer representation and just to chat. And it happened, this is again, like one of those really obnoxious stories, but it was my 21st birthday. And so I took, we like, I talked to her at my birthday dinner that I went out to um, at this little Italian restaurant with my friends. It was a very magical moment. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so I had, I did find an agent after being rejected by quite possibly every single agent in (laughs) (laughs) young adult kid lit world um, with that first attempt at a book. And then I still got plenty of rejections for Brightly Woven. And she and I worked on this book. Um, We edited it for months and months. I'm trying to remember how many months it ended up coming down to. But um, I would wake up really early in the morning before classes and I would go to... um, one of the nearby computer labs and I would work there rather than on my laptop because I could like go to the vending machines and buy a Coca-Cola and a package of cheese it crackers for breakfast nice. because it was before <laughs> the cafeteria woke up. You know, nice the poor custodial staff is like, exactly, exactly. I mean, I basically, <laughs> if I am not <laughs> like my default setting when it comes to food consumption is like raccoon. I will like eat anything. <laughs> like, um, so my <laughs> health habits in college were not great. Um, and so I would just wake up really early every single morning. And um, there's an arcade fire song that was my um, phone alarm at the time, keep the car running. And so every single time I hear this song, I like get this little jolt of like almost panic because of like when you first wake up in the morning and you hear that first couple of notes, you're like, yeah. um, so it takes me right back to my roach infested dorm room. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and then, you know, by finally, you know, second semester senior year, the book went out on submission, got rejected by some publishers. And then we ended up accepting this nice offer from Egmont because 
you know, it was going to be one of their first lists. They were really excited about it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, from there, it, it really was a wild ride. And that little, yeah. um, well, I couldn't write full time straight out of college, having sold that first book. And obviously, that is the reality for most writers. You cannot just like quit your day job or immediately go from school to writing full time. I, um, I was very grateful to have that, like my advance as a initial kind of nest egg of savings when I was living in New York and working, um, as an assistant in publishing and have, making like no money in one of the most expensive <laughs> cities in the world. Yeah. What a time. <laughs> <laughs> so you were yeah. working as a, was an editorial assistant. Yes, I um my very first job in publishing was as an editorial assistant. I had done a program called the Columbia Publishing Course, which is sort of like this um intensive publishing boot camp that you kind of go through um for five I think I'm trying to remember how many weeks it was. It was a couple weeks, but they would have speakers come in, you kind of form your own little mini publisher and you learn about all the different aspects of like the many different jobs within publishing, like sales and managing ed and editorial and all of that. And really the reason why people did this course and why I did the course was um, because they have a big job fair after. And when you went through this course, your resume would be, you know, worked on within the course with a coach and you would, you know, your resume would go out with everybody's, all of these various different HR departments at publishers. Um, and which is sort of, you know, looking back, I was like, wow, that's really unfair that you have to like pay for this yeah. not inexpensive <laughs> course. And I just like very randomly in my school, I went to the College of William and Mary in Virginia. And um, just like so randomly, they had a scholarship to one of the publishing courses. And I was able to get, I think, I split the scholarship with another student who went to the publishing course, I think in Denver, maybe NYU. But anyway, this is a very roundabout story. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, my, I was like, I know I do not want to be an edit. The one job I do not want in this industry is as an editorial assistant because I know I will not have time to write my own books because yeah. so much of being an editor, editorial assistant is, um, taking your work home with you, taking your reading mm -hmm. home with you for submissions, doing a lot of editing work. And also um, at the time I was like, my strength is in drafting. It is not in editing. Those are like two very different parts of your brain. But yeah. the kind of wonderful thing about coming into the publishing industry is that you really do start almost no matter what department you enter, you start in an administrative position really. Um, and it's an apprenticeship industry in theory, yeah. where you are like taught everything you need to know as you advance up um, through the ranks. So naturally, the first job that I was like called in to interview for was an editorial assistant. And I was like, I better take this job because we're several weeks in now to me not having a job <laughs> and having to pay for yeah. this apartment out of my savings. <laughs> so I took that job. Um, I had a very old school boss too. And I was just like, I I will stay here for a year. I will do this job for a year and learn as much as I possibly can. And then I will move into a different area of publishing. So that's what I did. Eventually, I moved into a branch of marketing at Random House Children's Books. That's what you would call like school and library marketing, where it's marketing geared towards, um, you know, educators and librarians. And you do a lot of presentations and book talk and you... Um, Book talk, talk, not book talk. <laughs> book talk wasn't a thing. Sorry. Then. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, That's book talk didn't. <laughs> was just a twinkle in somebody's eye. Yeah. <laughs> at the time. Um, and yeah, it, it was such an interesting job. It's sort of like somewhere in between being like a marketing person and a publicity person because you also did all of the library library shows and educator shows, like the American Library Association show. You would have a booth and you would, you know do more book talking there and hand out okay. arts, galleys, that sort of a thing. Um, so it was great. And even though that job ended up having a lot of travel to it, um, I was still able to kind of reclaim most of my weekends. And I wrote pretty much the entire Darkest Mind series exclusively on the weekends. Oh. And I had an absolutely insane, truly insane 
drafting schedule for those books. Um, <laughs> where <laughs> it's like amazing. I still have like functioning organs because I <laughs> lived on Mountain Dew. That was like I would, wow. <laughs> every Friday night I would go home, buy some, buy like a Chipotle meal, go to the CVS, the pharmacy um, that was on the corner of my street. And I would buy like three bottles of Mountain Dew and that would carry me through the whole weekend. And I would stay up until I would write from like 6 p.m. on a Friday until like four o'clock in the morning go to sleep, wake Whoa. up at nine or 10, <laughs> write all day Saturday into like three, four o'clock in the morning, go to sleep, write all day Sunday. And then I would be like back to day job, Alex during the week. But that was oh my God. what I was willing. To, I know it. I, yeah. Are you okay, was, Alex? I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're reliving I know the trauma now. now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just thinking about it kind of blows my mind too, because I'm like, nowadays, if I'm not in bed by 9 p.m., I'm like grumpy. I'm like, yeah, I want to go yeah, to bed I'm at 9 p.m. <laughs> um, but I had, I had no creature to take care of. I had no children, no dog. My dog has like forced me to have normal human hours. So that's great. Now I work a <laughs> typical nine to five. But it was worth it for me because that was really the series that ended up kind of changing my life and eventually enabled me to write full time. But I think, um, yeah, it was pretty much the entire Darkest Mind series I wrote with that yes. schedule on the weekends. <laughs> it was really bad. I, I don't recommend that schedule. <laughs> that wild, that wild life that you used to lead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My wonderful party days in New York City of like being home. My like roommate, my poor roommates were like so good, so good to me. They would like come and check to make sure I basically was still alive, that I had not like consumed so much Mountain Dew. My heart had given out. Um, yeah. They would kind of check in and be like, are you sure you don't want to like come out with us? And I'm like, no, I'm writing my book. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, as you said, Darkest Minds is something, you know, really took off and exploded and um, very excitingly was made into a movie. Yes. Was it sort of surreal and, and, and wild to see that kind of story and those characters realized in live action? Yes, it was. Surreal is honestly the perfect word for it. Um, the thing that I think really surprises people is that I had pretty much nothing to do with the movie. I had, uh, they were, I don't know if they had been like, they'd had like a really bad interaction with an author in the past, but it was, it was really interesting because um, if I had not befriended the screenwriter and he, his name is Chad Hodge. He's a wonderful human, wonderful writer. He is someone who is like writers have to stick together, whether you're like a screenwriter or a novelist, because Hollywood just like does not respect writers for yeah, the most part. Yeah. Um, they are not treated especially well. Um, and he was he would like send me the script or like tell me what was going on. Like he was the one who was feeding me all the information because I was really out of the loop. And so it even though it took years and this was, you know, back in the time where now it's a little bit more common, like when you option a project, like you can usually like finagle your way into like getting an executive executive producer credit. And like, you can be a little bit more involved um, and negotiate those terms. But like, this was back in 2011. And because it was really only this one production company that wanted to option it, there was like, no, no real way to negotiate. So it was like, you either accept it or you don't. And for me at the time, the option was a ton of money. And I was like, yeah, everyone kept telling me like, this will this will never get made. So like, it is essentially free money <laughs> for the time being. <laughs> yeah. Like, as yeah, long yeah, as yeah. they keep renewing the option, it is sort of just like this additional income that you can use for your savings and whatnot. So I was like, great, sounds good. Except then years later. It, when it's something like one in 10 book options actually get made into films. Or television. I would be shocked if it's even like that percentage. It's, yeah, it's it's so unlikely, isn't it? Especially back then, because it was kind of, you know, I when I, was, I don't know if you happen to know this off the top of your head. I was like, when is, <laughs> when did the last Twilight movie come out? Because there had been um, <laughs> enough success with like, yeah, Twilight, The Hunger Games, that um, Divergent. Hollywood, yeah, Divergent. Hollywood was like really going through buying up and optioning a ton of YA stuff. So it seemed even less likely at the time that this would get made. And I was just like, again, 
free money because that is the reality sometimes <laughs> yeah, as yeah, yeah, yeah. a writer where you're sort of like, well, I, if I do want to be able to write full time and make a career out of this, I have to like build savings um, in order to carry me through the years um, and not, you know, write, keep raccoon hours on the weekends. Um, but, um, but like on the whole, like, so for example, I really did not know who was cast in the movie until for some of the roles, I didn't know who was cast until they announced it. Um, Chad, the screenwriter told me at least who the main characters were. So I knew that before it was announced, but I, like I said, I don't know if they had a really bad experience with an author coming in and like causing a lot of problems about changes. I thought I was actually fairly relaxed about the whole thing because (laughs) I personally am not, I'm not like so precious about my work that I think it is flawless and shouldn't change at all because the reality of transforming a story from the page to the screen, like you were going to have to make some changes. Um, And so I was like, you know, like, great. Like we can talk through different things. I can give you my opinion on what I know the fans love and what they'll be really unhappy if you change and so on and so forth. But they only, this was the other thing that like absolutely killed me was they would not let me come visit the set. They would let my publisher come no visit way. the set, but not me. So my editor and some of the people at my publisher got to visit the set. Um, I want to say like a month before I, I did, they only let me come for like the last two days of filming. It was very oh. strange. So, yeah. but I like, I loved, I loved the actors who played the main characters. I think the movie is super fun. It has a very different vibe from the book itself. So it helps kind of separate the two <laughs> in my mind. But sadly, <laughs> the movie really did not perform well. And even though at the time I was like, free money, I was like, oh, <laughs> now as, as someone who is not like, 23, 24 years old who is trying to build her career. Now I'm a lot more protective about who gets yeah. involved, you know, like yeah. and well, just, you have a lot more weight sort of to, to carry now. Right. Yeah. I think there was kind of this overall sense of powerlessness <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of yeah. um that first film option and then eventual movie. It still blows my mind that they actually made the movie. It just like kept yeah. going and going and going and like <laughs> Every you single time the option. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to be like, like oh, just kidding. We were never making it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. And really, because it can fall apart pretty much until they start filming. And sometimes it can even fall yeah. apart as they're filming, I guess. Um, so I was like, until it's like fully in the can, I'm not going to like assume that this is really happening. But um, on the whole, like I really love the people involved. I love the director. I loved the actors. I love the whole cast and crew who just like when I did get to visit the set made me feel so welcome and were so wonderful. And so now when I think about the film, which again, sadly completely bombed, um, I think it actually set a record in the United States for like the biggest second week theater drop. Like that's the level of it bombing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so sometimes it can be like, wow, that was like, the worst best thing to ever happen to me (laughs) (laughs) you know um but i i do appreciate that experience and it was really surreal to be able to go to like san diego comic-con and promote it and just get a glimpse into the hollywood side of things which is definitely a lot more glamorous and um so fascinating compared to publishing publishing feels so old school compared yeah. to Hollywood in some ways. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like don't mean to sound ungrateful because I am really grateful that film happened. And it's, it's still to this day is bringing new readers to that series. They're finding it. I think it, it airs every once in a while on FX here in the United States. Um, and so, but like the, the price of my like free money mentality now is I get asked every <laughs> single day if there's going to be a second movie. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's my um, that's the tax I pay on having this film made. Yeah. Well, you've got other series and other books. Like, I mean, you have a brand new book coming out, so you never. Yes. Fingers crossed. Something something goes there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get to the final question, um, I do have a question from uh, from uh, from a friend of mine and a fellow YA author, Melissa Welliver, who would like to know. Um, as someone who's written and published both sci-fi and fantasy, do you think it's right that those two genres are often lumped together? Oh, that's a good question. 
You know, the interesting thing about YA is that I've always felt like, and maybe this is changing a little bit now too, because of how indie publishing has really expanded. And um, I think with like book talk, especially it brings a lot of those indie books, which might not have, you know, been right for a traditional publisher looking to like put it into a specific genre because it blended so many genres like book talk now gives them an avenue to be brought into a physical store like Barnes and Noble or Waterstones. Um, I think YA though, in particular has always been a little bit freer in terms of blending genres. And so it's never bothered me that sci-fi and fantasy get lumped together, but I think it's really, it kind of comes down to the heart of the story because I think if you're thinking about like, Star Wars sci-fi, which was really (laughs) my main avenue (laughs) to Star Wars. Cause my, so I had a very early introduction to Star Wars and I always thought of it as like fantasy more than science fiction. And I think some people would agree with that. It is fantasy. It has like, I think it's fantasy more because there's, there's no real science for me. Science fiction has to have a scientific explanation and there isn't really one in Star Wars. Exactly. So like something like the Martian to me is like hard Mm sci-fi, but then Star Wars is sort of like sci-fi fantasy. So I think for certain projects, it is fair to say something is sci-fi fantasy, but I think it's really kind of the heart of the book, almost less so than like, the window dressings like i think star wars has like sci-fi window dressings but it really has this like yeah core like hero's journey myth legend kind of like fantasy heart to it i guess is how i would yeah describe that that's a really fascinating question i'm gonna i really want to think about that a little bit more too just because um i maybe if i were like i don't know i really don't know but it like i said the one thing i've always really loved about ya and why it's never really bothered me to kind of to have some people say a book is fantasy and others say it's sci-fi like the darkest minds is just because I was like, well, yeah, there are elements and tropes that kind of pull from both genres. So sometimes yeah. I think it's fair to have them blended. And then other times I'm like with the Martian, I'm like, this is not fantasy. This is this is science fiction. Yeah, I I think as soon as you attach the the like prefix hard to it. So if you say hard sci-fi, you're thinking like the Martian and something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. or interstellar or like, yeah or like high high fa- yeah like high fantasy like high fantasy yeah yeah like lord of the rings no one's saying lord of the rings is never going to be science fiction you know it's always going to be high fantasy yeah why did we go with high fantasy and hard sci-fi and not why isn't it like high high sci-fi high, high fantasy and low sci-fi yeah um. <laughs> i was like high sci-fi somehow like doesn't is the rhyme there like doesn't work hard sci-fi i think does work better yeah yeah yeah, yeah. high sci-fi more rigid genre lines yeah (laughs) (laughs) awesome well that brings us to uh the final question which as always is alex if you were stranded on a desert island and could take a single book with you which book would it be okay so when I saw this question, when you very kindly kind of send it ahead, wait, am I breaking the fourth wall here? Should I not have said that? Shh, no one knows. It's a big secret. Okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> no, <it's fine. laughs> I was like, okay, take two. Um, <laughs> so She didn't know. Yeah. She's making it up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I actually just recently rewatched the entire series Lost. Um, did you watch mm-hmm. Lost back in the day? I started watching Lost but I never made it to the end and everyone used to nag me about it well, and then I felt so vindicated when everyone hated the ending. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good feeling when you're like I knew my intuition was like bail out now it, it can only get worse yeah. from here. Um Like I watched it when it was good and people liked it. <laughs> I will say like the first 3 episodes of Lost are such good compelling storytelling to me like I love yeah. going back and rewatching that pilot cuz it's like so well constructed and it's All the so character work right. is so compelling. Um, but having just rewatched Lost and now I'm watching Yellow Jackets, which is a different plane crash in the middle okay. of the wilderness. <laughs> Have you seen yeah. Yellow Jackets at all? I've not. I, I see the billboards everywhere for yeah. it. I haven't watched it. It's fantastic. And again, I'm not really a horror person. <laughs> at least I didn't think I was, but it has like a <laughs> <Turns> slight <out. laughs> element of horror horror fantasy-ish. It's it's really good. Um, um okay. but so now I've watched these two survival shows, so immediately my brain goes to like, okay, 
the one thing, my main takeaway from Lost is how boring it would actually be most days to be trapped on a desert island. Yeah. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I would want a really long book. Um, I would want a book that talked a little bit about hunting and trapping so I could potentially pick up some tips. And then I would also want a book that was long enough that I could, if it really came down to it, use a lot, like it would have a lot of pages. So it would be good kindling. Like I could use it okay. over multiple yeah. days. <laughs> so I have settled on the Lord of the Rings as nice. long as it's like a special edition with an appendices on it or appendix, <laughs> appendix, it would just be the one, right? <laughs> well, uh, someone else, someone else some time ago picked Lord of the Rings and managed, and I made them prove it to me after the episode, they managed to find, there's a copy on Amazon you can buy, which is all three books like welded oh my God. into one massive <laughs> tome. I think I had, I think I had a bind up of all three books and even some of the appendices um, that were attached to it. And I was like, as I was thinking about this just now, I was like, well, yeah, I could like, especially if the appendices were there. <laughs> or at least a section of like one of them. They'll I think there are six first. different. Well, I was like, maybe I could teach myself Elvish to like pass the time. You know what I mean? Like really, like I, I guess I have a fear of being bored, but yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. I know. I was like, I wish I could have told you it was um, like some amazing book of my heart that I could reread a thousand times over, but I am not someone who can just like continue to reread the same yeah. book yeah, yeah, yeah. and honestly every single time i've tried to read the lord of the rings i don't think i've ever fully made it through the first book because i always get stuck at when tom bombadil comes in yeah i knew it was going to be tom yeah bombadil. i was like it's all the songs and that yeah oh <laughs> it, i'm like what am, what am i doing here like because at that point you've read so many pages about like describing the scenery and like mm-hmm. and everything and then is he sings like, another song and then he sings another <laughs> song and it's more but like when you have all the time in the world while you're waiting waiting to be rescued on a desert island you're like yeah you'd finally get past tom yeah you'd finally get past tom i think yeah i think that's what i'm gonna go with i mean it's a classic it's it's you know the grandfather of most fantasies so yeah it's true I, every once Can't in a while i think about writing something and if I'm like, oh, Lord of the Rings did something similar, if I can't improve on it, I'm not going to write it, <laughs> like, oh, or twist okay. it in an interesting, compelling way. Um, yes, yeah, I do. I do love the world of the Lord of the Rings, but I don't know that I've. Now that I've said this, I don't know that I've ever fully finished the first book. I like jumped ahead to the second and third book. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I don't need Tom Bombadil. I will get the like recap by a film. I'll figure it out. Extended film editions. And then I will (laughs) jump to books two and three. I can't do Tom again. I can't meet him like this again. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Well, it's a great choice. Uh, It's it's always going to be a classic. Um, Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on the podcast and chatting with me. We've gone way over time. Yeah, it's been absolutely I'm so fantastic. Sorry. <laughs> That's no, I, it was great. I didn't even notice I was having so much fun. But thank you so much. It's been so great chatting with you and hearing about all of your experiences. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. And for everyone listening, if you are wanting to keep up with what Alex is doing, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Alex Bracken. You can also find her on Facebook, Pinterest, and Tumblr. The brand new book, Silver in the Bone, is out uh, right now, so you can go and get it. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. For more off-the-wall bookish discussion, check out my other podcast with YA authors Melissa Welliver and Naomi Gibson. That's The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. Thanks again to Alexandra and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll catch you in the next episode.